Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. Hey, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So I have an interview for you today, and that interview features Dr. Owen Williams, who is the Chief Executive Officer at the Northern Care Alliance NHS Foundation Trust. And I absolutely love this conversation. For those of you who are regular listeners to the podcast, you may be thinking, <laughs> is she okay? Well, I've just got a bit of a sore throat. It sounds worse than it actually is. But I still really wanted to record this interview. I can imagine how busy he is. Before we jump into this interview, which is full of advice, one thing I wanted to share with you is I'm reading a book called Building a Second Brain, and the author is Tiago Forte. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is that those of you and people like, if you're anything like me and you listen to lots of podcasts, there'll be so many helpful tidbits and inf- piece of information that you want to capture, but you don't and you, that you won't. And I, the reason why I'm bringing it up in this interview is there's so many things. I will listen back to this interview and make notes for myself. There's so much information. I would say The book, Building a Second Brain, invites you to think about all of the information and content you consume and to create an organisational system to help you retain that information and pull on that information when you need it in the future. And I think if you've not read that book or you don't make notes whilst you're listening to podcasts or reading books, let this episode be the day that you start to build your second brain. (laughs) Okay. In this interview, we touch upon so much. We talked about leadership. We talked about culture. We talked about, or Owen shared what he does to support his mental health. We talked about research and how Owen is applying his research to his most current role around health inequalities from an internal workforce perspective and an external community perspective. He shared his morning routine for those of you that love that sort of stuff. We talked about, I suppose, Owen being a black leader and the responsibility that he feels that he has to pass the ladder down and do interviews like the one he's done with me today. Owen shared his views on social justice. He shared that one of the good things the public sector does and his organisation does is seeing beyond what the organisational does. Um, So keep listening to find out more what that means. I would love it if you could share this interview. Tag me if you do, if you share it on social and enjoy. Hey, Owen, thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? I'm good, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. I've got a bit of a, I don't usually sound like this. I've got a bit of a sore throat, but other than that. A bit Barry Whitish today, is that you? Okay, so I wanted to start off. I feel so, when you said yes to coming on the podcast, I I was like, to my my team, like, oh my God, we were so excited, we were so excited. Um, I know you've had an extensive career, but could you share, share with our listeners what you do today and what you wanted to, or who you wanted to be when you were a little boy? Yeah, so in terms of um, what what I do today, I'm I'm the chief executive of what's called the Northern Care Alliance, and that's a, a health, social care, and community integrated organisation. So we do 
um, social care activity, uh, community care in home, right through to um, classic A&E, right through to, you know, really high-end tertiary services such as neurology. Uh, we do a lot of research and innovation. So it's quite a broad um, set of um, services that we provide to our service users. And we cover a population of about a million people. Um, the budget's about um, just about 1.62 billion. So it's a lot of taxpayers' money that we've got um, responsibility for. Um, and we've just got around about 20,000 colleagues that work with us. So it, it's quite um, a significant uh, enterprise organisation in, in, in that um, respect. I think in terms of um, when, when I was um, growing up, uh, I, I think I'd be lying if I said that there was any one particular person um, that I, I, I wanted to be, but um, I used to certainly like um, sport when I was growing up um, and I kind of lived in the era um, when the West Indies were actually good and the thought of them getting beaten by um, Ireland in cricket would have been a, a real smile because uh, people would have just thought that that's just impossible. So um, I suspect um, cricket in idols like uh, Clive Lloyd, Viv Richards, Michael Holding were kind of the people that I would have said I'd like to have been one of them. And so before you came into the public sector, you've, have, you've got a commercial background. I have indeed, yeah. And one of the reasons why I set up a podcast and I called it the business of healthcare, when I did my MBA and I was writing my dissertation, I asked lots of healthcare professionals, do you consider, and there were lots of GPs in this kind of cohort, do you consider yourself to be an entrepreneur? Do you consider yourself the, like the NHS a business? And all but a couple said no they didn't consider the NHS a business. So somebody that's coming from a commercial background, like what experience and minds, commercial mindset do you bring to your role today? Yeah, and, and, and Tara, I'm, I'm, I'm always a little bit weary about um, what I would call the comparisons um, of, for example, commercial sector, public sector and uh, voluntary sector, because I think that there are, uh, transferable skills. I think that um, there are some things um, that the um, public sector does well. So it, its ability to see um, beyond what it does as its core services. So ability to think about social justice matters, social value are things that I know that within the commercial sector, very much uh, organisations are always wanting to develop some of that. And then there's just some of the language, if I go the other way, um, think about in my, in my um, sort of commercial uh, sector experience, we, we wouldn't have used the language of, for example, cost centres and stuff like that. We'd have talked about um, profit centres and stuff like that. So just the psychology is a little bit different. But as I say, I'm a, I am a little bit cautious about using language that gets us into comparisons because... I think there are good and bad aspects to 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 all forms of sectors, as we as you might articulate. Going back, you said what the public sector is good at is seeing beyond what it does. Yeah. Can you just explain a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yeah. So you know, um, you could take a view that says so. If you look at the twenty thousand colleagues um, that I work with, you could have an ex a perspective that says. Well, a social worker is just about a social worker. You could say that um, a nurse working on an emergency department or somebody working in the stroke unit or a community a nursing colleague or a therapist, that you know that's all who they are. But of course, Tara, um, we are not just um, those roles and responsibilities. Many of us um, do other activities such as volunteering and so on and so forth. And I think particularly seeing our colleagues as more than just their functional roles is something that the public sector is pretty good at. And um, also seeing um, the role that organisations play, for example, in terms of anchor institutions. I don't know if you're familiar with that language. Yeah. Um, but understanding that we are significant uh, employers, understanding that we contribute to very much the economic um, prosperity of a geographical area 
Uh, we contribute to the environmental sustainability. So those are all things for me, Tara, which I think um, flow quite naturally from um, organisations, certainly I've worked with, you know, and I've worked for three local authorities and worked for two uh, NHS integrated uh, care organisations in my public sector time. And that has been one common theme. The organisations tend to see themselves more than just service provision. In regards to so the group of like your alliance, your group of organisations, yeah. would are, is the culture the culture will be different in all of the organisations? Yeah, is the goal to keep it like that, or does the alliance kind of organisational structure? Do you want an overarching culture that each of those organisations align to? Yeah, I think the answer is a bit of both. Um, and um, somebody came up with a term the other day that really stuck in my mind uh, and talked about the searching for the unicorn of one single culture. Well, that doesn't really work in my world. And I think searching for that kind of just doesn't reflect reality. Um, you know, Tara, I don't know if you have a family or, uh, or kids. I should have asked you that. Yeah, I've got three kids. <laughs> so but um, you know, if I if I if I use just my own, you know, I, I we've got three boys uh, in our in our in our family. They, they they were born in the same house. They had the same mother and father. But are those three boys the same? Absolutely not. Really, really diverse. But as and when they 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 need to look after each other, or we come together as a family, we're able to do to do that because the conditions and the culture's right to act as one. But equally. Um, when we need to be or we want to be diverse and have our own characters um, because of the context that we're in, then we're able to adapt and oscillate between the two. And I think that's how um, certainly I would view um, the relationship we have as a group in the Northern Care Alliance, but also the various care organisations, as we call them, that sit within it. It's having that ability to, when you need to come together and work in a, in a kind of a consolidated way, you're able to do that because that meets patient needs, service user needs, or it meets colleague needs. And then equally, where you need to be um, more flexible to meet more place-based or locality needs, you've got the ability to, to do both. It is, it is not, a, it's not a, a, an easy thing to do because particularly when you, you, know, you think about the overriding cultures, um, to just say, for example, in the Northern Care Alliance, there is just one culture, or to even say that there is, you know, five or six cultures when you think of it through a, a care organisation lens, is just too simple. The reality is um, there are many cultures that sit within an organisation, and what you try and do is you try and build a coalition so that broadly we are going in the right direction. So we talk a lot about saving lives and improving lives is our core mission. And I've just got a simple question, certainly outside of um, one of the offices that I occupy, because uh, I move around offices to the different sites. We've got a simple question and on that question outside the office, it just says, did we save or improve a life today? Full stop. And I think regardless of um, which care organization you're in Tara, that's a set of words and a question that can apply to all of us. So it's finding those things that can bring us together, but also having the flexibility to help us to respond to um, local need. This might be a hard answer, a question to answer, but where you're asking yourself that question, is one life enough? If you've yeah. got 70, if you support a population of 1 million, is, is going home and your members of staff thinking did I improve or save one person for every one person that you may have improved or saved there might be lots that you haven't yeah when that question is I don't think of it in the singular okay um you know I I think you know it's a question that really is about generating a thought and particularly about reminding us about why we're here okay. um because it's so easy Tara to jump into a space you know of MF, MS Teams, Zoom meetings and whatever else and kind of forget why you're here. So that question is more about a reminder and really trying to emphasise is if I can walk home and think whether it's one life I've impacted or it's thousands, 
if I can walk home and know that, um, you know, today I, I made an impact in that respect, one, that encouraging me to come back tomorrow, no matter how difficult it is. Um, and two, I think it just kind of helps us be orientated to where we need to be. What are the current things kind of whirring around in your mind at the moment when it comes to work? So I think I think one thing, I mean, I, I work with um, a, a group of um, really talented people uh, and very, very, very diverse people who have been through a lot. And that's not just about the pandemic. You know, colleagues were going through challenging circumstances, you know, before the pandemic. The pandemic accelerated challenges and we're now in a new era. I mean, I, I don't know if you watch Game of Thrones, but... Um, you know, one of the themes of Game of Thrones is often about um, the perpetual winter. And, you know, there used to be a time where there used to be seasons that used to be involved in health and social care. We've now left that place. Um, there's kind of a perpetual motion that's happening. So my thought process constantly is how do we um, get colleagues and also the people that we serve, the service users, to kind of adapt to the new reality um, of this kind of perpetual motion. There's, there's no point lamenting um, that, but it's how do we adapt, particularly when some colleagues feel that they've really given um, as much of themselves as they feel that they can do. So when somebody feels like that and a person's mental well-being might be in that space, how do you work with those people to actually say, no, there is light at the end of the tunnel when people are stuck how do you help create those breakthrough moments and that's really the thing that's whirling around in my mind constantly all the time um, is how do we make sure that we meet uh, the demands that service use have on us and the diversity of those demands and at the same time make sure that we don't you know absolutely frazzle and burn people out in the provision of care have you had a CQC visit during your time in this current post? Yeah, so this is week 52 and um, the CQC decided to um, drop in probably about week um, 40 odd of my okay. um, tenure. So we've had a full um, Care Quality Commission um, uh, inspection. Um, we're waiting for our results uh, of that. So we'll wait for the first draft of the report, which will probably come at some point this month and then will probably um, be reported um, in the coming months. What is it like to have a CQC visit? How does that affect the mood and what, where your attention is focused? Well, I think inevitably, um, one of the things that the CQC bring is that they bring an automatic set of fresh eyes because no matter what the systems and processes you go into, and you know, I, I've been on a fair few CQC inspections now, so on the receipt of those. And no matter how uh, perfect you think you are, if there's ever such a thing, I don't believe there is, but let's just imagine that world uh, for a second. Um, there is always um, something that gets identified that you think, gosh, I've not seen that. But what I think the CQC then look for is what's your ability to respond? Uh, and as long as you haven't got too many things where they could articulate that you don't seem to have an understanding about the care that you're providing and whatever else you know and I think even in the most difficult moments so every CQC inspection I can imagine at the moment that is involving any care organization that provides what I would call category one accident and emergency services which is the the real tough end of stuff I will be very surprised whether it's in Leafy Shire County or tough urban community, whether any of those organisations right now are providing care in the way that they would wish to because of such as the demands. But what the CQC look for is your general awareness about what the demands are and that have you got plans in place to try and address what those requirements are. And I personally, I welcome the CQC. I, I've never been one of those people, regardless of what the, the gong or the badge has been, I've never been an anti-CQC person because I believe that the, the women and men of the CQC are very much about trying to get to the same place that we talked about earlier. I mean, why wouldn't the CQC be 
um, as as sort of involved in saving and improving a life as we would be. And that's the mentality that I try to take. So regardless of whether they've just come in the door or whether, you know, I'd have been here for five years, they certainly would be received positively from what I'm concerned, regardless of where they end up saying, because I ultimately believe um, often it helps you improve. Why did you say yes to this current position? It's a huge, huge, huge role. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it really, really clear for me. Um, so I'm um, quite um, passionate about tackling health inequalities. Um, and in my last organisation, you know, we did some really, really good work about what I, I would call it um, sort of opening the eyes or kind of reducing the scales off of maybe some eyes um, around the possibility that particularly um, what I would call physical acute providers of care, that what they can do in the moment of that care to help tackle health inequalities and as a kind of a minimum, make sure that we don't further exacerbate health inequalities. And my, my feeling was in my last organisation, and it's certainly an experience, is that perhaps tackling health inequalities for organisations like ours had seemed kind of, yes, we, we, we respond to it, but we maybe not figured out that actually we may contribute to it. So there was quite a significant breakthrough and the attraction about this job that I'm now in was an opportunity to really, really test this at scale. So in terms of geographical footprint, um, my last organisation um, covered the geographical footprint of, let's just say, around 450,000. Now it's a geographical footprint of uh, 1.2 million, um, very, very diverse, some of the most challenged communities um, in the country. So really for me, it was to see, is it possible to not only answer that question about how you tackle and make sure you don't exacerbate health inequalities at scale, but could we get to a place, which I believe we will do in four or five years' time, as being a thought leader worldwide, um, using our research capability and so on and so forth, to really help other people in other parts of the world, other parts of England, as well as our own residents and our own colleagues in really moving into that space of influencing um, and moving from health inequality to health equity. Where do you start? So you have a new organisation, you've got that body of research. How do you, for people that think there'll be a spectrum of what people think. Some people yeah. will be like, absolutely, yep, get it. What can I do? And there'll be other people that think, what's the problem? Yeah, and and um, what I would say is, is that um, and somebody, not quite the same question, but somebody was kind of saying, you know, should we be looking to, uh, have this mindset and actually I, I had to remind them about the very first principle of the NHS constitution um, which effectively says that you know everybody should expect um, a consistent level of care but it also goes on to say in that first principle that where we know that there are communities that are at more risk of having um, a shortened life, we should have regard to those um, communities. You know, we shouldn't just carry on um, almost treating everybody the same because there are some communities that are more deprived than others. And what my experience is, Tara, and this is where the data side becomes important and your digital capability becomes really, really important. My experience is, is if you can speak to almost any clinician, doctor, ther nurse, therapist, advanced nurse practitioner, social care worker, whatever else, if you can get them in a position where they can see their own patient or service user data real time, but also see the impacts that their care can have as per deprivation, yeah, uh, as per ethnicity, as per learning disability, and that they become educated. So if you use learning disability as an example, if you are a, a female and identified as having a learning disability, you are likely to live 18 years less than somebody who doesn't have a, a learning disability. And equally, if you're a man, it's 14 years uh, less. 
And if you go into more deprived areas, those numbers will change yeah. yet again. So if we can start moving to the place where the upper GI consultant, uh, the neurologist, the stroke consultant, the stroke nurse, the advanced care practitioner in theatres and so on and so forth, start to appreciate that the person in front of them is not just another number or a statistic, that there's more to them and there's a, and that the roles that we play, the decisions that we take sometimes on behalf or with our patients and service users can make a significant difference to that person's life, then the model of care starts to adjust and starts to, to, to change. And then, of course, Tara, there's those people who say, yeah, like you said, they say, so what? And why should we bother? Shouldn't we just treat everybody exactly the same? But, you know, there's some British Red Cross data that um, I just looked at the other day that said, for example, something like less than 1% of the population, less than 1%, accounts for something like 29% of ambulance journeys. So when you start thinking about data in that sense, if you were in any commercial business, yeah, and you had a, um, let's say, customer grouping that was impacting, um, you know, if one, less than 1% of your customers were impacting on 29% of what you would do, any business, any business would focus on that group of people to see, how can we make sure that that impact changes for the positive, for all, for the business and also for that group of, of customers or patients? So to me, whether you, you're in the moral world or whether you're in the business world and you're in the business of economics and money and finance, yeah? And I think part of the ongoing challenge is to get people to start thinking about, you know, is the current model of care does it remain affordable if you just have an approach that just says the people who are most able, okay, to access or negotiate or describe their way into receiving care, okay, and by the way, they're most able to pay, um, should they whatever else. If your model is orientated towards that, okay, you still have a system that ultimately becomes unaffordable. So at some point, you are going to have to have regard to your most deprived communities because just put the care aside for a moment, it makes economic sense to do it. But then if you overlaid, overlaid the thing that really matters just, to me, the quality of care, then that's really important. And how does that translate? So we talk about health inequalities from our patient and community's perspective, yeah. but also if, if we turn that internally on your workforce. Yeah. So yeah. what does that look like? Well, it, it actually, it's quite, it's very much the, the similar principles, really. So, and, and you know, one of the things I've, I've talked about, so, for example, you know, I've profiled our workforce by indices of multiple deprivation. Okay. And, you know, for your listeners who might not be familiar with that, in essence, it's an indices that kind of has 10 categorizations one effectively representing most deprived communities right through to 10 um, representing um, least deprived communities. If you just apply that to your workforce, one of the things that you see, for example, is that when you look at the career progression of some of our colleagues from um, most deprived communities, well, actually, um, yes, some of them may achieve jobs, but then if you think about their ability to go up the uh, career ladder, okay, in a reasonable length of time, you see that there is a disparity between that career progression than the workforce that might come from the least deprived communities. So how do you work in a way that everybody benefits? Because what I'm not talking about is that those in the least deprived communities, for example, should somehow stagnate and not be able to grow and develop also but there are clearly groups of people in most deprived communities who in some way, shape or form, uh, having that attention on them will pay benefits because you want them to grow too. Because again, this is where the social justice side and also the social value side comes. Of course, in an organisation like ours, somewhere between you know, um, 60 to 80% of the colleagues who work um, will we'll live in the geography that we serve. So it's not just a case of 
having attention for them in terms of what happens internally to the organisation, Tara. It's also understanding that they play a role in, in our communities. And if they feel better about themselves, if they feel that they've got prospects, then they're going to advocate for that within those same communities and they're going to help the confidence that sits within those communities. So for me, it feels really logical. That might not be the same for everybody else and that's why we're all different. But I think some of this does come into a little bit of no-brainer territory. So I suppose it builds on this. I looked on the uh, Nuffield Trust and it said, obviously, you're really passionate about health inequalities and trying to... trying to reduce or prevent people from minority backgrounds from getting left behind. How do we collectively do that? Yeah, well, I think the first thing is, and, you know, I've talked about um, this this acronym of um, being sure, you know, you know, if you want to tackle health inequalities, be sure. And, and, and it's the breakdown of the word sure. And the S is, first of all, is to see it, um, Tara. And I mean, really see it. Uh, see what is actually happening out there, that there are different experiences for people through no fault of their own, but just by dint of their cultural background, for example, or for example, um, the communities that they've been brought up in, or it could be that a lifelong disability that they've had. Yeah. So there's something about see it. And then once you see it, start to understand it, you know, again, whether you're in the voluntary community sector, commercial sector, um, you know, in, in in the public sector, there is that thing about, so what what sense do we make of what we see and how does that uh, impact on our approach to business? How does that approach to our approach to, impact on our approach to care? And then the R is then respond, you know, so you see it, you understand it, then respond. And some of the things and some of the responses that you do, and I would really stress that in that seeing and understanding phase, make sure you co-produce with your communities. Don't put them to a side. You know, they've got to be involved in that see and, under- and understand so that you make sure that you see in a plural view of the world, not, for example, Owen's view of the world. Okay. And then have a collective response because some of that response is not always about people who provide services. It could be about a carer who cares for somebody. It could be people who are receiving care for themselves. Uh, are caring for themselves Um, but do the response and don't be fearful of things that don't work out as intended because when you do the response not all of what you do is going to work in fact some of it's going to gloriously fail but that's where the e comes in because the evaluation becomes quite important so that see it understand it respond to it and evaluate it is really and it's a virtuous circle that you keep working that through and over time, you start to make movement uh, around it. And I think that's how we get the collective we on this, as opposed to it being the single I. So this is really, really helpful. And this this bit of the podcast is very selfish. <laughs> it's very <laughs> selfish to me. So that framework is really helpful. Before we started talking, I think we, I say collective, because I think we've all got a part to play I am a limited company, but I I do hold, I say to people, I've got, I live a, the best of both worlds. I have value my independence, which is really important to me, but I've got that key, which is an NHS email, which allows me to navigate around the system. And I'm very privileged. Um, I see lots of people that don't look like me or see lots of people that think like, how can you do what you do? And I think, oh, it's, it's, it's not easy, but you just do it. You just try it. So I did think, okay, I really value education. When I think about the why am I in this position, it's because of my education and it's because of my network. Like, And I work hard, but definitely my network, definitely my education. Could I pass that on? Absolutely. So we created our own business of healthcare mentorship scheme. We gave away, um, initially it was £10,000 worth of educational grants because we looked at the research and not everybody has the opportunity to access, uh, you know, like courses and education. And we also provided mentorship. First year, amazing. It's like, oh, I'm going to do this forever. Second year, it was like, it was really hard. We kept extending the deadline. People weren't interested. We went far and wide. We've got a good platform. Third year is just like, do you know what? The response has been quite, I don't know, it's been quite poor in the fact that 
We couldn't attract enough people. And some of the people that did come didn't finish. We never heard from them. We tried to support them. And that evaluation, I'm in that period. I'm the sort of person, well, not the sort of person. I'm in that period where I've tried to do something good. And I've tried to do that off my own steam. The evaluation is like, do I want to keep putting lots of effort into this? Um, when I, I need some personal satisfaction, I need to know that it's helpful. Or, you know, like, should I just give up? Should I just partner? I'm in that evaluation stage, but I'm in that stage where I'm feeling a little bit like I want to, I feel like giving up. Yeah. But I don't want um, to, because that's not yeah. my nature. But so I'm like... I mean, there's a couple of things there. So there's three phases you've talked about or three experiences you've talked about. And there's kind of like been a gradual decline in those experiences, as if I'm hearing you right. Yeah. I think there's, first of all, um, really visiting that first phase where things seem to be working well and just asking yourself, um, Tara, and evaluating yourself, uh, and not just you, but the way you did that. Yeah. Uh, inclusive of those people who really got a good experience in that first phase. And just to ask yourself, is it possible that something that you were doing really, really well, that might have felt quite minor and you're not thought about, that maybe just unintentionally you're not doing it and, and you're not aware that you're not doing it, um, or you were doing it, but you need to do it some more. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I know that might sound, I, you know, I would never want to come across as patronizing to you yeah. or anything like that because you probably thought about some of these things. But often, um, because we get so vested in something, Tara, uh, and even though it's a podcast, I am putting my hand up to my um, face, is that sometimes we get blinded to what's staring us in the face. Yeah. And that can be particularly true of when things are working well. And we get so blinded that when things start to change, we don't quite understand that the change is happening until it's too late. I mean, I don't know. Have you ever heard the story of the boiling frog? No. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. Like he dies because he didn't, he didn't, yeah. he, he didn't I, experience the I don't, I don't think it's actually, I don't think it's actually true. I don't think that's what happens to frogs in real life in, <laughs> okay, in, in yes. slowly boiling water. But, you know, there's, there's either that story, isn't there, or the story of the, the native Indians when they, you know, they, they saw the Spanish ships coming towards the shore um, back, back in when. And because it was um, foggy or misty they, they, and they'd never seen ships before in that way, they didn't necessarily believe what they saw until it was too late. I think what I'm just saying is the first thing I would always just check on is whether there's just some nuances that have happened that actually if you either rediscovered some of those that would actually get you back to where you were the other bit, and I, I always talk to colleagues about this all the time, and it's a question I, you know, I, I always put um, the word context into my diary, and I put it in at random points, okay? Because, and the reason why I do that is a reminder to, to myself is to ask myself the question, has the context changed? Because, again, a bit like that sort of boiling frog story, sometimes when we're immersed in something, we miss the nuance that our context may have changed or the people we're saving's context may have changed. And therefore, we're still applying something to a context that's out of date and we've missed that the context has shifted. The context has definitely shifted because I launched it in the pandemic. Right. I know we're still in the pandemic yeah. or endemic, but yeah. the context is completely everybody, well, not everybody, lots of people are at home, lots of people are on the net. George Floyd to so the context yeah. has it's changed yeah and therefore and if you think about it employability for several months has actually been quite good so people's ability to get work has been quite good we're now entering a phase where you know whether it's the Bank of England or various forecasters are saying that there is likely to be a rise in things like unemployment you know worthlessness will be affected by that and therefore some people who maybe thought well you know I can just get a job now and I don't really need to worry about the likes of Tara and whatever else and doing that stuff because I can just get on the way yeah you may find that over the coming months that um, some people return to the metaphorical fold if you know what I mean that's really helpful and I think 
hopefully our listeners will be able to, you know, apply that to any, any, anything. It's not specific to me, but hopefully that was a good case study. It's hard to keep the momentum, especially when you've got so many things. But I suppose, you know, like if it's a passion. Yeah. And, you know, Tara, sometimes you have to be able to say, you know what, this doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Um, And that's one of the hardest things, isn't it? That would make me so sad. Yeah, but, you know, one door closes, another opens, doesn't it? Um, Because the one thing that you have is the time and you can choose how you allocate that time. And you may stumble or you may discover something else that one gives you that sort of self-fulfillment. If there's a commercial element to what you do, it gives you that commercial um, uh, response as well. And so that's why I always say to people, um, you know, make sure that if something happens to you, if something you love doesn't um, pan out as you'd expected, try and avoid of thinking that um, that's it now. What am I going to do? My self-worth has gone. Everything that I love has gone. Because usually, and times are usually a great factor in this, is that over time, uh, providing you support, and I think that's why it's always important. I always talk to people about coaching and mentoring really 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 important for you even me now at the age of 54 you know I have a coach I have somebody that I can go to and talk about a 360 appraisal or stuff like that um so it is important that you utilize that sort of capability if you've got it and then if you can if you can and the door has closed or you've taken a conscious decision to stop something there's always another choice there's never one way to progress Okay, can I ask you, you're really, really busy. Why did you say yes to doing this interview, given how busy you are? Yeah, well, you know, I think it's really, really important. I I can't even remember the film it was. But there was a a film about um, somebody who was really, really, really successful. And the the characters were talking about this metaphorical um, wall and one character was chastising another character who's been was really, really successful, but was very, very self-centered, very much about themselves. So they'd got their success. And this other character was chastising this person, saying, look, listen, when you get over the wall or whatever else, when you achieve, you must chuck a rope back so that someone else has the opportunity. You know, you talked about me earlier about doing lots of, um, you know, you know, you can Google me, you'll find videos, interviews and stuff like that. But if you think that that is something that I rub my hands and it's what I love to do, I probably you're probably misreading me. But I do recognise that over time, you know, if you're somebody who is still one of the few Black, Asian, minority, ethnic, whatever's in whatever you do, yeah, but at a senior level, okay, I feel personally it's incumbent on me to make sure that um, I, I, I can answer questions or be accountable to people or I can help as many people as possible whilst I'm still uh, on this earth. What's the definition of the word incumbent? Definition of the word incumbent? I think my definition of that would be somebody who is already in place okay yeah doing okay. quite well uh, and continues to enjoy the the, the 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 fact that they are placed and whatever else so it's not uh, a, you don't consider it as is it a burden that i'm sure when it's um like black history month your <laughs> pa is like, you need two pas you need one just to manage the requests around black history month and one to just actually do your job yeah and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, I was just referencing uh, Black History Month uh, 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 the other day in another conversation. But, yeah, that's that's true. And there are, there are other things where, you know, how many meetings have I been in where somebody might say, do you know what, we're looking for uh, an equality and diversity lead or somebody who's passionate about health inequalities. And, you know, you can almost see the virtual eyes or the real eyes sort of turning around to you with an expectation. Well, <laughs> it, must be, it must be that person then because they, they seem to talk about it. But a part of that, uh, and a part of why you're committing is all the time I am trying to broaden 
the group of people, regardless of what their cultural background is, um, regardless of their ethnicity. I am wanting always, and particularly uh, in my own research, um, I, I coined a, a, a phrase which was a blend of the word diversity enthusiast. So I coined a phrase by the virtue called diversiast. And what I talked about was um, what I would call the skilled diversiast and the unskilled diversiast. And, and, and the contrast that I tried to make between the two, Tara, was that the unskilled diversiast is really, really, really passionate about diversity. But when somebody has a counter view, which might not share that passion around diversity, may actually be the opposite of that. The unskilled diversiast finds that very, very hard to accommodate that perspective. Whereas the skilled diversiast understands that if you've got to a space where at least somebody is sharing that alternative perspective, whilst you might not agree with it, it's very, very important that you take the time to listen to it. And so therefore, what I use Black History Month and other things for is that I'm also cognizant that there are people out there who just really fundamentally disagree with the concept of Black History Month. So it's not just about having a dialogue with those people who are advocates for Black History Month, but it's also taking the time to have the conversation um, with those people who you know are absolutely at the other end of the spectrum. And at least to hear their perspective in the hope that because you're hearing their perspective, they may be courteous enough to reciprocate and give you the opportunity to at least share your perspective. And that's why you have to make the time. There's no point you being in what I would call, in this instance, a diversity echo chamber. You need to be in a situation where you are trying to influence as much as possible people who may have alternative points of view and being respectful of that. What is your approach to your career? Would you say you're quite strategic? Do you take, I know some people that will say, you know, like we'll take a role now because they want to be, they're thinking of, you know, like the next three roles. They're building their experience, might not be their dream job, but they know actually, if I want to sit as an ICB chair, actually it might be a really good experience for me to take this community job, even though that I'm based in secondary care. What has been your approach to your career? So that person you've characterised as strategic and forensic, perhaps in their career progression, I'm what's called the opposite of that. So if there's okay. a, if there's another spectrum, okay. if, there's a, if there's like an alternative reality, to that reality, I, I, I'm not motivated that way. And then, you know, not so long since, you know, it's about my only post in LinkedIn. You probably may or may not appreciate it, but I, I don't actually do social media. Yeah, I did say uh, But I, 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 I did talk about the facts when I, when I after six years completing my, my, my doctorate in, in business administration, and I just did post one thing and it, and it said, it's not about the gong. It's for me, it's about, trying to make a difference to the, the people that I serve. And I do use that word, serve. I talk a lot about servant leadership. You know, it's about trying to make a difference to um, local people and also supporting those colleagues in terms of their health and well-being who are trying to provide support and care to our local um, people and communities. That's what drives and motivates me. And if actually at the end of the day, I can do that best by being a gardener, then I'll be a gardener. If it means I can do it best um, by being a chief executive of the Northern Care Alliance, then so be it. But it's not the gongs. It's not the status and the hierarchy. Um, it is about being able to make a difference. Uh, and, you know, there's a good friend of mine called uh, Rob Webster. And for many, many years, you know, we've kind of had this sort of thing, two things, two questions. Is it legal and will it make a difference? <laughs> OK, I'm conscious of time, but I've still got, yeah. I've got a few more questions for you. How do you manage your own mental health? How do you keep healthy? How do you keep strong? How do you keep relaxed? But like every person, you know, I, I have my ups and downs uh, around uh, mental health. You know, there'll be some times when I'll be high stress and, you know, that impacts on mental health. 
that's why having um you know my wife having um my family my boys is very very important um because you know one of the things that my my, my late mother was great at uh, and my dad too is um they, they never allowed me to um get ahead of myself they would always try and encourage me to be grounded and regardless of how successful I was being or otherwise actually but trying to get that even keel balance I think my uh, my wife, uh, my boys, um, and also some of the people that I use for for, for coaching purposes, I think they help me, um, particularly in difficult moments, get a sense of equilibrium and a sense of of, of balance uh, around that. I also like to walk quite a lot as well because I find particularly um, at, at non-working time, if I can get out to walk, it's just a nice way of just clearing on the clearing my head because that's the other thing. Um, sometimes um, people don't find a way of kind of um, I call a reboot in the mind. Um, so you just can't, you're just carrying layer after layer after layer after layer of, of thoughts and issues, and sometimes it can become overwhelming. So that's how I try and do it. You know, reliance on family, reliance on you know those that coach me, and also you know trying to make sure that I haven't got an even keel approach. Describe your morning routine. So my morning routine, so I'm an early starter. Um, how, how early is early? So if, if I say to you, um, our, our organisation, we work across four different geographical um, sites. So depending on what site, so I work on each site each week. That's why earlier on when I was talking about an office, it's not quite like that. Um, in that you know I'm occupying spaces um, wherever there's a there's a seat and a desk for me around some of that, but typically um, my 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 alarm clock will go around six o'clock. I'll probably be after shower and whatever else. Uh, I'll um, usually be on the road by six thirty. I tend to take water and some fruit as breakfast with me, so that by the time I get to work, I can maybe eat at work depending on the destination. So if I know I'm going into central Manchester or stuff like that, I'll probably do that a whole a half an hour earlier. So I'll get up at half past five and so on and so forth. Then um, usually I'm at work, probably before most colleagues, unless they're working the night shift or whether they're doing shift handover. And then um, I find particularly in that hour, maybe up to eight o'clock at least, there's just an opportunity for me to bring some real pure thought or thinking to get through, um, you know, work or just be thinking about some stuff. And then there's usually the rhythm of the work starts kicking in at that point. And then if I can, if I spot a moment in the diary where I might be able to jump on the motorway to mean that I'm not going to be sort of two and a half, two hours on the motorway when it could be one, then I will try and find an opportunity to try and get across. But that's not always possible uh, around some of that. But what I try and do is I try and make sure that I'm not doing 100-hour weeks and stuff like that. Because whilst that might suit me and my working style, one of the things that I talk a lot about is um, that that can sometimes um, create a, an expectation in others, and I need to make sure the battery don't run out. Um, <laughs> it can sometimes create an expectation in others that because you know the senior figure does it, there's everybody an expectation else do that everybody does it. And yeah, you know, one of the things we haven't probably talked about, you know, is you know, for example, I'm I'm quite passionate about trying to help and support uh, women if they need it to progress in their careers. And I often think that sometimes insensitivity to start times or unintentionally projecting when you think a meeting should happen, kind of um, unintentionally or intentionally, depending on who you are, can work against certain people who may have different lifestyle characteristics and so on and so forth. There'll be people listening to this podcast, and I know yeah. a few people in that are having a really tough time in their job for a variety of reasons. And they're in that moment, they're in that, should I leave? Should I stay? I hate my job. I need the money. What questions would you pose to those people in that situation? Well, I, you know, I, 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 I coach or mentor, depending on what the requirement is, um, um, 
some people who are kind of in that space. Um, and invariably, if those conversations go well, the person hopefully gets to a place kind of on their own in some respects. Yeah. Um, but they kind of get to a place where they realise that perhaps they're not as trapped or as caged in as they might think. And that, and that's why I talk quite a lot about the gong. You know, sometimes I'll meet some people and they say, I want to be a chief exec. And then you do a, do a bit of the Socrates, why? You know, why? And then they give you an answer and then you say, why? And you keep going. And then actually, for some people, there is a real clear underlying purpose as to why they would want to be a chief exec. And for some other people, it's potentially gong chasing, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I try and get people to think about for themselves is fulfillment doesn't have to be linked to hierarchy. And there's always an opportunity. And there's several colleagues I can think of who, for example, had not thought about roles like trustees or roles like non-executive, you know, uh, development director type roles. Sorry, not development. Um, and by broadening their horizon, they, they, they become freer. And then there's also, you mentioned earlier, um, Tara, about the importance of networking. You know, as I say, I don't do um, social media personally, but I do understand the value of, for example, a networking tool such as LinkedIn. You know, I think that's how we, uh, yeah. I think that's how you reached out to me. Um, you know, we, we, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation if LinkedIn didn't exist. Mm. And now um, we're a part of each other's network, aren't we? Yeah. So the other thing I want to ask you is around the integrated care board. So because of your your alliance, and I may have this completely wrong, so to correct me, yeah. your alliance is, and is dominant in your ICB because you 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 were already connected. Your integrated care system is trying to bring together community, primary care, secondary care, third sex voluntary organisations in the community. Yeah. You guys are step ahead because you already have your alliance so when it comes to your integrated care board what are the conversations that you are currently having and what is the priority well if you just think about whether it's uh, our organization or several other organizations whether it's mental health local government all which are components of an integrated care system and an integrated care board. You know, when I think about the board I sit on in Greater Manchester, you know, it's got people from very diverse um, um, organisations, entities and backgrounds that formulate that. So there's lots of um, voices. But what what I do know is that, um, you know, God forbid, um, Tara, um, there is a possibility that you might need some form of care or support that will take you to one organisation, but will also require you to go to another organisation and will also require you to go to a third and a fourth organisation. There will never be a time, in my humble opinion, or certainly in my lifetime, where trying to make that process centre on the person or the individual and service user rather than the organisations, okay, There'll I'm never so be a time. There'll never again. be a time. There'll, so what I'm trying to say is there'll never be a time where trying to move away from kind of organizations and that person having to move to the organizational drumbeat as opposed to the organizations moving to the person's drumbeat. There'll never be a time, in my opinion, where that won't always be a challenge and won't always be something that we should be looking to further collaborate on. Because, you know, my utopia, my dream would be that actually people don't have to navigate us as organisations and different entities, that actually we create a world where it's just like a single stop for them, regardless of what their need is. And that's why, regardless of what my organisational status is, or the status of other organisations, patients don't work to individual organisational footprints. They work to their own footprints, depending on what they need and what their demands are. And we have to create a world 
where actually we meet those needs. And, you know, some people will say, oh, he's living in cuckoo land, la-la land, and stuff like that. And, and no, I am not about to make a comparison that says centre parks is the same as the NHS or an integrated care board. But there are examples out there, aren't there, where you can go for an experience where there's multiple inputs, but to you, it comes across as seamless and one thing. Okay. Yeah. So, I think of loads, well, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So whilst we we may want to say that oh it's impossible actually there's quite a lot of examples about where it is possible and i'd like to if you need health and care or you want to support somebody who needs health and care i'd want to just know that it's just like effectively clicking your fingers and it's straightforward and as i say some people will say he's mad at that guy i'm listening to him here what's he on but without that kind of ambition and aspiration, um, I don't know where we'd be. I think that is the perfect way to end this interview. Thank you so much. No problem, Tara. Lovely to meet you. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you hear, I would absolutely love it if you left us an iTunes rating and five-star review. I know many of you give us a shout out on social media, which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast. So please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care, on Instagram and on LinkedIn. Just look for Tara Humphrey. And if you're not subscribed to our newsletter, please do. You get to hear more insights, more confessions, some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week. So click on join the newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in in the next episode.